Our scripture reading this evening will be from John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And we'll read the first 30 verses. John 4, verses 1 through 30, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And you can see from the footnote there that that's about noon, our time. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, 
See a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. We'll stop there in our reading. Dear congregation, last week we began our study then of the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. You remember that sermon dealt with belonging. That in body and soul, in life and in death, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And the question has told us that there is only one comfort in this life. This is a difficult, trying life. But there is this comfort, this consolation in it all, that we can belong to Jesus Christ. We talked about our identity as those who are owned by God. Owned by Jesus Christ. Well, congregation, tonight we begin to walk that pathway then. What is the pathway that leads to that comfort? What is the pathway that we can walk that, that brings us that comfort? And that gives us a sure and solid foundation for that comfort. And that's why I've entitled this sermon, The Path of Life. The Path of Life. And the, and the catechism now, all the rest of the catechism is going to lay out this path for us. It's a path that leads to life, eternal life. And in question two then, we have this path given us in a very summary form. Let me read that with you. How many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the Catechism then gives us three things. Three things. And this is the path of life. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Or as many of us probably learned it in Sunday school and catechism, misery, deliverance, and gratitude. This is the path of life. As I... Take apart then this this question, congregation. You can see that one of the key words right there in the question is that verb, to know. Question two tells us how many things must you know. I want to stop there. I want to stop there and, and park on that word know a minute. Because that know there is understood differently. Even in the Reformed churches of which we count ourselves a member, and I mean the not our immediate denomination, but the wider circle of Reformed churches. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And sometimes we are taught and and told that, that know there means experience. What are the three things that we must experience in order to live and die in this comfort? And many churches will take this even farther and, and they will lay out a series of experiences that a person must have before he can have and before he can have any kind of assurance that this comfort is his. And, and many churches on this stripe, uh, that when a person does claim to be a Christian, especially for the first time, uh, you will be called and the elders will ask you to give some account of how God led you to faith in Christ 
and to explain to them the different experiences that you had which led you to come to Christ. But the emphasis there is very much on the experiences and the truth of those experiences and whether they fit this prescribed pattern that these churches lay out for their believers. And of course, the, the result of this often is churches that are full of people who do not regard themselves as converted. They do not see themselves as Christians because they've not had this order of experiences in, in step one and, and experience two and three and four. And so that's why I want to focus on that word no. Because there's no question, congregation, that God uses a whole variety of experiences in our life to bring us to faith in Christ. There's no disagreement on that. But the point I want to make this evening is that it's not the experience which is the most important thing. But it's that we're brought to that point in our life that we know. In fact, I would, I would suggest a better word. I would say that the better word would be confess. Maybe in our own time, the word that we're used to using is the word own. What are the three things that we must know or the three things that we must confess or own in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? We can think even in, in the scriptures, a congregation, of all different ways that God brought his people to faith in Christ. We rejoice to read that Paul says about Timothy, from childhood you have known the holy or the sacred writings, you've known the scriptures. And another place he says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. What a beautiful picture, isn't that? Of the line of the covenant of God from grandmother to mother to child. And we don't read of any, of any uh, difficulty, really, that Timothy had in coming to faith in Christ. It passed from his grandmother to his mother. And Timothy had his own faith, right? We're not saying that Timothy somehow was saved because he had a godly mother and grandmother. No, he came to his own faith. But that faith went and it grew in grandmother. Grandmother passed it along and of course by the grace of God to mother and mother to son. And it beautifully passed imperceptibly from the one to the other. And Timothy came to faith in Christ. But his story of experience probably isn't much to listen to. Right? Compare that now with the Apostle Paul. Compare that with the violence of the Apostle Paul's experience. How vigorously he fought against the call and the offer of the gospel that came to him again and again. Right? God says to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks, the pricks of, God, of the gospel as it came to Paul. And Paul resisted. He pushed away. He fought against the gospel. He even tried to destroy the very faith in the, in the city where he was. And God violently, finally on the way to Damascus, brought him to his knees, physically to his knees. He struck him down with a blaze of light and glory and brought him violently to faith in Christ. What a difference. But congregation, Paul never says in, his, in, his, in the gospel, I'm a saved man because look what God did to me on the way to Damascus. Do you read that in Scripture? No, Paul says, I'm a saved man because I'm trusting on the merits and on the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
But that's oftentimes misinterpreted. How many things must you know when we begin, we begin to think of a, of a series of experiences that we must have in our life? That's not a helpful way to think of it. We must come to faith in Christ. And I'm sure that if I called you forward this evening and asked you to tell me, how did God bring you to faith in Christ? We would have, if 15 people came up here, we would have 15 different stories. Because God has an infinite variety of different experiences that He uses in the lives of people to bring them to faith in Christ. But the point is not the experience. The point is that we're brought to that place where we own our misery and guilt before God and we take refuge in Christ, our Savior, and live a life of gratitude to Him. The psalmist says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. Misery. I shall rescue you. Deliverance. And you will honor me. Gratitude. So this is what the Catechism is laying out before us. These three things that we must confess. These things that we must own in our life. Right? And you can think of it as, as, a, as, a, as these three different things. Are how great my sins and miseries are. We have to go down first into the depths of our sin. We have to see how rescue is, it happens in our life. How are we delivered from that pit? And then a life of gratitude. This congregation is the path of life. And these things we must confess and these things we must own. Well, again, we can see in the ministry of Jesus how he does this in the lives of different people. The Catechism says this is the path of life. Does the Scripture then teach us likewise? That's always the question we have. This morning we had, it is written. So let me take you then to two examples of Jesus who leads people through this threefold path, the misery, deliverance, and gratitude. And again, I'd like to begin with the Samaritan woman. This is what we read from Scripture. And it's so interesting how Jesus deals with this woman. Her own particular experience of coming to faith in Christ. But in that, and again, we don't focus on the experience this evening, but on these three things that Jesus teaches us, which we must come to own. And notice how Jesus leads this woman to each of these three things. Now, in the first place, we have Jesus coming to her and saying in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God. So you might say right there, Jesus begins with deliverance. There's a gift of God. And later on, he says in verse 14, when uh, she asks about this water, he explains the gift of life. It'll be a well of water springing up to eternal life. So this is the gift that Jesus brings. Deliverance. Here's a gift for you. You need this gift. It's eternal life. And Jesus uses the picture here of water. Since he's sitting on a well, right? And he needs a drink. He needs water. He, and isn't that how Jesus works so often, right? He sees something. He immediately turns it into a spiritual lesson. He immediately makes it a kind of visible parable, as it were. Right? You need water. You need water that is going to spring up into you to everlasting life. Water that you drink of it, you never thirst again. Ah, she's very interested in that. Who wouldn't be? Right? 
right away. She says, Sir, give me this water. And she seems to be a little confused here, not maybe entirely understanding Jesus' picture. Verse 15, So I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. So this woman has, you might say, some grasp, right, of this gift that Jesus will give her. And she's interested in it. She wants it. And then this very puzzling question. Of course, it's not puzzling all, but it's very puzzling to her. He said to her, Go call your husband. What does her husband have to do with this? What does her husband have to do with getting a drink of water? Well, congregation, now Jesus is going to take this woman into her misery, into her sin, into her guilt. Because the woman uh, very smartly answers, right? I'm not married. But of course, she's not dealing with a human preacher. She's dealing with Christ, who looks into her heart and says, very true. For you have had five husbands, verse 18, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. You see, congregation, now Jesus pulls the cover back, doesn't he? And he opens up the sewer of her own heart. And he lets her look in there. Now she knew it, but she didn't know that he knew it. You see, the catechism said, how many things are necessary for you to know, right? And I'm saying, how many things are necessary for you to confess, right? We can know it kind of to ourselves, but to know that God knows to know that God sees into your heart. And now Jesus pulls back that cover, right? And he lets this woman know, I know the sin of your life and the guilt that lies there. Because Jesus is going to walk this path, right, of misery, deliverance, and gratitude. And the woman was very interested in deliverance. But now Jesus takes her to that first step. And before we can go to deliverance, we have to go down. We have to see the darkness, the blackness, the foulness of the human heart. The heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And God brings us then in our life through a whole variety of experiences. Not so important. But God brings us to that place where we look into our own heart. And that's what Jesus does. Do you think Jesus cares about her husband? Jesus is not interested in her husband. Jesus is interested in showing her her own sin and her own depravity. I'm not sure the woman felt the full conviction of it at the time, right? Because immediately she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, and she moves right into a theological disputed point. That's quite a clever move. And actually that happens a lot today too. Uh, right? right when, when you address people, when you confront them with the gospel, oh, you're a Christian. Uh, what do you think about... And, and, they, and they right away list off some controversial issue. But that's just a distraction, isn't it? That's just a bypass, Right? And Jesus doesn't go for that, right? Jesus says, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, right? And Jesus drives right home to the fact of we must worship God the Father in spirit and in truth. And it's not so important where we worship them, right? Of course, the Samaritans and the Jews were in bitter hatred and enmity with each other on that point. But Jesus doesn't fall for that. Well, then we have the grand result. Now, I didn't read this far when we read the scripture. But this woman then, it seems to begin to dawn on her, doesn't it? And in 29, she has that lovely thing, right? She runs back into the city. Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? In other words, she's beginning to realize this man is something else. This man is somebody different. This man is unique. 
this man may be the Messiah that we are hoping for. And the result is given us then in, uh, well, when the Samaritans come out in, in verses 39 and 40, and then in verse 41, many more believed because of his word. In verse 42, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And no, there's that word no again, by the way, and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Well, there's that pathway, isn't it? That path of life. Oh, she's very interested in the gift of eternal life. Jesus says, go call your husband. He opens up her sin and guilt. And then many believe, many come. And they say, we don't believe now just because you told us. We've seen it for ourselves. We know, we confess, we own Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Well, that's a happy result. And then I just noticed that it says in verse 43, after the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. Can you imagine, congregation, what must have taken place on those two days? That must have been the most glorious Sunday school catechism preaching service that ever happened. As these Samaritans, these hated Samaritans, hated by the Jews at least, but loved by the Savior, sat at the feet of Jesus and he taught them. He taught them all the things they needed to know. He taught them this path of life more fully. Those must have been happy days in Samaria as the Samaritans flocked to the Savior and believed in Him. But that's the path of life. But congregation, especially in this path of life and especially in what Jesus does here with this woman, is we see how He, he drives home her own sin. You might say he, he highlights her guilt. But in the next story, we see that Jesus highlights a different part of this path of life. So let's turn there to Luke chapter 17. And now Jesus is dealing with ten lepers. We read in Luke 17 verse 11 that while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now these people have a firm grasp of their sin and misery. They're, they're miserable. They are lepers. They know their misery. Again, how much of a knowledge they had of their own sin and of their guilt, I don't know. Uh, no doubt it was more with some, less with others. But certainly the misery of their leprous condition is very clear to them. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, they cry out. Jesus doesn't need to make clear to them that they are miserable people. They know their misery very well. But now Jesus says to them, in verse 14, Luke 17, 14, When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Isn't that interesting? Dear friends, that Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priest. Now, the only reason they would go to the priest is to confirm that they were healed of their leprosy. So they go to the priest with all their leprosy. And as they go, as they step out in faith, going to the priest to show the priest that they have no leprosy, they are healed of their leprosy. Deliverance. They are delivered of this foul disease that crippled them. But now Jesus wants to make a point. 
Right? And he's, again, he's teaching these people. He's using these ten lepers as kind of a parable, a visible parable to the people. And verse 15, Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Now again, Jesus always knows how to drive these points home. And so it's of the ten, the Samaritan one, okay? The one that they hated the most. He's the one that turns around and gives glory to God and falls on his face at Jesus' feet. And again, now Jesus is highlighting not so much the misery part of it, but the gratitude part of it. And Jesus is saying, there were ten lepers. They were all healed. Is there only one that comes back to show gratitude to God for the deliverance he received? What about the gratitude of these other nine? Again, Jesus is highlighting a deficiency in the religion of these ten lepers. This man is on his face before me giving glory to God. But the rest of you, it seems to be rather, you are miserable, you're healed, and now you go on your way. And you never turn around to give glory to God for the blessing that he brought in your life. Where is the other nine? There's a deficiency in there. This, this, there are three things you must know. And in both of these cases, with the woman at the well, where she wanted to skip over her misery and her sin, and these lepers who skipped over the gratitude, that is a deficiency in their religion. We must say that that is a superficial Christianity or superficial religion that extracts one of these three things. Well, congregation, let me make some points of application on this as we close this message. My first point is just that, the path of life. You know, I see that Samaritan woman. Do you see her there? You see her running back to the city and she gets in that city and she says, come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. That's how I see the catechism this morning or this evening. I see the catechism as coming to us and the catechism is saying, come, let me show you the path of life. Let me bring you to a man who will tell you every, all things that you've ever done, who will read your life, who knows your heart, who knows your sin. He knows your need of deliverance. He knows all the dark corners of our life that we hide from other people. Come, congregation. See a man, capital M. See the man, the God man. Come to him. He will show you the path of life. He knows your life already. What a beautiful text in Psalm 32. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. That's Jesus' call this evening. That's Jesus' call this evening. Let's walk that path together. The path of life. Come, said the woman, see a man. And I say it this evening. The catechism says it. Come, see a man who will tell you not only everything that you've done in the past, but the way to walk in the future. That's a blessed and happy call, my friends. What a happy woman. What happy days that must have been for those Samaritans who had Jesus to stay with them for two days to show them the path of life. Are you ready to walk that path this evening, congregation? Is that a path that you want to walk this evening? That can be dark and intimidating, can't it? It can be intimidating to walk a path with someone who knows all things that ever you have done. That makes me nervous. 
I'm not sure I want to walk that path. I think I'd rather hide. Congregation, the truth of the matter is he already knows all things that ever you have done. And one day he's going to expose those before the judge of all the earth. Don't you think that it's wisdom then to walk the path of life with him now? To begin on that path with this man who tells us all things that ever we've done. He's going to show us our misery. He's going to show us our sin. He's going to show us the only way to be delivered. And he's going to show us a life of gratitude. It's a happy path, but it's not an easy path. Not an easy path tonight. But it's a happy path. And it ends well. In fact, it's our only comfort in life and in death. It's the only path that ends well. In the second place, congregation, I've said strands and not stages. Because it's easy to think about the catechism here as if it's giving us these stages, right? That God is going to lead us on this path and first we're going to go through a, a, a pathway where he's going to teach us our sin. But then we're going to leave that stage and we're going to come to another stage of our experience in which he's going to show us deliverance. He's going to show us how we're delivered from our sin and guilt. But then we're going to come out of that stage and into a third stage of gratitude. That's, a, that's not the biblical way to think of it. That's why I said strands, not stages. These are three strands of a rope. I remember one man in my, in my old church back in Grand Rapids who said it's like a three-lane highway. Right? Those three lanes run parallel to each other all the way our life. And it's an important thing to think because you sometimes find you sometimes find people who, who uh, even in, in their life begin to, to wonder why they continue to struggle with sin. Shouldn't I be, shouldn't I be finished with sin? I, I've been a Christian now for, for five, ten, whatever many years. Shouldn't I have been through that stage by now and into this new stage where I don't wrestle with sin anymore? I don't have that struggle with sin anymore. No congregation. That's not how it works. These are three strands of a rope that God leads His people on this path of life. Sometimes more in one lane. That's actually, I like that analogy, right? One lane. Sometimes more in the other. Sometimes God brings us face to face with our own lack of gratitude like the, t- the nine lepers. Sometimes God will bring us face to face with our sin again. Sometimes God shows us the beauty and the wonder, the glory of our deliverance in Christ. But these are three paths, three lanes that we walk. And don't think of it as stages, but strands. You know, there are, there are, there's, there's, we, we read about uh, this uh, in, in Christian circles, this kind of victorious life teaching, right? Which again goes back to what I was just saying. These people who believe that, that somehow in their, in their Christian walk, They'll, they'll reach a stage where they'll kind of graduate from this stage where you have to struggle hard and fight against sin and discipline yourself and, and, and work hard on yourself. You'll graduate from that stage and you'll vault up into this higher stage where you won't have that struggle anymore. And you'll, you'll have like a victorious life. And many Christians struggle hard with, with I'm, I'm still wrestling with sin 3, 4, 10, 20, 30 years after I've been saved. Why? Again, congregation, this is how God works. He brings us down this three-lane road. But congregation, then in the third place, superficial Christianity or superficial religion, really these these applications all kind of go together, really. 
The absence of any one of these points, the absence of any one of these things, leaves our religion lacking and makes it superficial. And there are so many churches these days, right, that want to hear nothing of our sin and our guilt. That's discouraging, and it is discouraging. It compromises a person's self-esteem, which it certainly does. But congregation, that is a necessary part of the path of life, and we can't avoid it. And sometimes one even hears in Reformed churches comments like, you know, well, we're most, most of our congregation is Christian, so we don't really need to spend so much time on the sin and misery part. We'll spend time on the sin part when we do evangelism, when we meet with unbelievers. But again, that's a terrible way of thinking, congregation. That leads to untold misery in the lives of people. God teaches his people repeatedly, and he takes them again and again back into the depths of their own sin. And that's a good thing. A painful thing, yes. But that is a necessary thing. Because that leads us then directly into the second thing of deliverance. Some churches, and again, uh, uh, I hate to be critical, but it's, it's just a fact, even some Reformed churches, where all the emphasis in the preaching is on how we live our life of gratitude before God. With this sort of naive assumption that everybody already understands their sin and misery, and so we don't need to hear of it anymore. And then on the flip side, you have other churches that talk a great deal about sin and guilt of people. And they talk in glowing terms about the deliverance that comes to us in Christ. But they're not really interested in hearing about a life lived in gratitude. And when the preacher brings the law, when he brings the commandments, commandment one and two and three, they begin to cry legalism. He's taking us back to the law. You know the, the word in theology for that is the, an antinomian, right? An against the law religion. But those are superficial Religion, congregation, a superficial Christianity. And this is where we can see the wisdom of our fathers who counseled and, and, and made that preachers should cycle through the catechism year after year. Why? Partially, congregation, to protect against this imbalance that so often happens. That preachers begin to emphasize one of these parts to the neglect of the others. And so there's wisdom here, there's, there's balance here. That we don't be uh, Christians who, who neglect one of these things. The truth of the matter, congregation, of how serious this is, is that religion that misses one of these three is not true religion. And ultimately doesn't save. It'll disappoint us in the end. And that's why the catechism is going to make this so clear to us. These three parts, these three things that we must confess before God if we're going to have a real, substantial, biblical religion that will not fail us at the end. And so you see the wisdom of our catechism, the wisdom of our instructors, in bringing us so faithfully through these three things and not neglecting either of them. And it means that preachers, and we are fallible men, right? We have our... I remember at the seminar they used to say preachers have their silver bullets, right? They have their things they love to focus on. They're things they love to preach upon. I would love to stand here, congregation, and preach on the riches of Christ and the beauty of salvation in Him every Sunday again. Right? And, and we love to hear that. But there are other parts of the, of, the, of the Christianity as well, aren't there? There's other parts of the Scripture. There's other things that we explain and focus on. So the Catechism keeps us in balance there. 
I close the sermon congregation with this beautiful hymn that we all know as we reflect on the path of life that Christ will lead us on as we continue our walking through the catechism. All the way my Savior leads me. I think of that woman coming to the city. Come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. All the way my Savior leads me. Oh, the fullness of his love. Perfect rest to me is promised in my Father's house above. When my spirit clothed immortal wings its flight to realms of day, this my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. Ah, that'll be a happy thing, congregation, when we come to our dying day and when we can look back and see all the way our Savior led us, all the twists and the turns. And the elderly amongst us, they know this by experience, don't they? All the twists and the turns, the ups, the downs, the hills, the valleys, all the way my Savior leads me. I smile because I, I visited you and you've told me your stories of, of these valleys that you've faced. And it, it's so powerful, isn't it? To think all the way my Savior leads me. He's leading me on this path of life. Not always, not always easy, right? But the best and the happiest life. May God bless it to us. Let's pray. Almighty God, there are people here in this congregation who have traveled long on the path of life. And we look at them, Lord, with uh, admiration and respect because we know they've seen, they've seen the path of life in a way that we have not. Lord, we don't end in, in, in such people, but we end in the Savior who has led them to 70, to 80, to 90 years. And Lord, we are, who are younger I can rest in the same Savior. And look to you, O Lord, to lead us on this path of life. Lord, we confess that there are aspects of this path that we would just as soon not have to face. If we were in charge, we would turn this way or that way. or We would avoid this, we would shirk that. But Lord, help us to put our hand in your hand this evening and to say, lead me, Savior. Pilot me through this life so that one day we also can look back and say, all the way my Savior leads me. That we can say with the psalmist, all the paths of the Lord, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. Please bless us this evening, Lord. Bless us as we go into this week. Bless us as we face our occupations, our callings, the work that we do, the frustrations, the irritations, the happinesses and the joys, the sorrows. We're thankful, Lord, for answered prayer in this regard, and we give you all the praise. And we pray that we might see your hand leading us through this life. In the name of Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, we pray. Amen.